It seems that most people in the world believe that if there is a God, you relate to God by being good. <clears throat> Even when they don't claim a deity, some often show that they, um, they do with their minds and, and souls. Uh, they, they strive to, to do good by trying to be good in, by, you know, by the standards of their own mind. Even if they don't believe in a, they say they don't believe in a deity. They show that they're always striving to, quote, be good, do good by whatever standard they decided to go by, what is, quote, good. Most religions and social movements today are based on that principle, though there are a million different variations of it. Some religions are what you call nationalistic. You connect to God, they say, by, be, by coming into our people group and taking on the markers of society membership. That's certainly prevalent today. Other religions are spiritualistic. You, you, you reach God by working your way through certain transformations of consciousness. And yet other religions are legalistic. There's a code of conduct. And if you follow it, God will look upon you with favor. He'll owe you. But they all have the same logic. If I perform, if I obey, I'm accepted. Let me ask you, what do you know about doing your soul good? What do you know about doing your soul good? Are you open to committing to doing your soul good? So just imagine something that, that did your soul so much good that you ended up, as a result, doing a lot of good for others. Well, that sounds nice. How would you feel about such goodness, such rest for your soul that was that transformative? Here are some choices. You can think about your life from the view of man in general, which is to pursue happiness for meaning. To pursue happiness for your meaning. You chase your own felt needs to finally feel good and then from there hope to do some good. But the main goal is to pursue happiness as your meaning. That's one choice. You can pursue good works as the main pursuit and think that it's what justifies your legacy and self in the end before God and others only to realize all too late that God's standard is perfection and you will never meet that. You never have. Or you can hear God's word. You can look at, look at me this morning at God's word and consider Christ. The gospel of Jesus is not only different from those other options, but diametrically opposed to them. The gospel tells us that we can be fully accepted in Jesus Christ, and therefore, from that rest in Him, do good and obey. The gospel tells us we can be fully accepted in Jesus Christ, if we turn to Him 
And from that rest that He gives, do real good and obey. We don't do good to rest and pursue pleasures that are fleeting for, <clears throat> or rest. That, that's not where rest is found. Rest, according to the Gospel, is in Christ alone who transforms our lives into goodness that pleases the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, page 972 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. It will help you to have it in front of you as, we, as I refer to the passage throughout the sermon. Let me give just a little context and, and a brief background here. Here's, so far we just summarizing it. God is present. He's shown up in the flesh as a human being, fully man. Soul and body in Jesus Christ. Our context is on the heels of Jesus declaring Himself to be God present as the bridegroom of the bride promised to God's people in the Old Testament. The old, he's revealed to us also, the old co- we've, we've looked at last week how the Old Covenant revealed in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament preaches the New Covenant too. It's not only Old Covenant. But it's the story of the Old Covenant, that's for sure. Uh, the Old Covenant, as the tutor and, and, and as a teacher, are giving way. The shadows and types, the pictures of the Old Covenant, are, have, are giving way because the reality is present. The kingdom has come near in the flesh. Jesus is here, is what Mark is saying. The kingdom is present in Him. The old wine and wineskins are being made obsolete in Him. Man-made traditions and the Mosaic law cannot be mixed with the new covenant, with the person and work of Christ. The way to fellowship with God is in Christ alone for Jews and Gentiles the same. And that's where we left off last week. Let's take it up a notch. We'll let Mark do it. Okay, let Jesus take it up another notch. Look at the text with me. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's Word. Amen. Mark continues to highlight the authority of God in the Messiah Christ. Jesus is the eternal, divine Son of Man promised in the Old Testament. He is God come to us in flesh and soul, and He speaks as God because He is God, Mark wants us to see. Here's the central point. And the outline is not in the bulletin this morning because the sermon grew so long I had to split it in two parts. There's just too much goodness here, and I didn't want to fly by it this morning. Amen. So here's the central point this morning. Rightness with God, rightness with God, 
and goodness in this fallen world, and goodness in this fallen world centers on trusting, centers on trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Centers on trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Point one, or part one this morning. Jesus is the expert and authority on our rest. Jesus is the expert and authority on our rest. There are a lot of voices, beloved, in the world and in religion that want to tell us how to live the most restful life. But what you find out is that they really don't hit the center problem. They don't provide true, lasting rest. The boys and I went in Books a Million yesterday, and there was just so much there written in self-help, self-improvement. It's probably their best-selling section. And they keep, but would you look at these volumes, there are so many demands in them. You eventually will get demands that get so many demands that at some point you can't you can't meet them anymore. And you can't take them anymore. Read, read the latest self-help books. Read the demands of other religions. Read the demands of the Communi Communist Manifesto. Uh, they do not provide rest, and they call you, and they don't call you and I to do what we were made for. And that's to commune with God. If we don't have that, we'll never rest. And here's an example right here in Scripture. Right here in Scripture, here's an example of man-made religion clashing with the truth. The scene is straightforward, isn't it? Jesus and the disciples are going through the cornfields. The disciples pick off some corn apparently to eat. By the way, that was permissible according to Deuteronomy. The Pharisees say that they are doing what is unauthorized. That's what that word really means. Unauthorized on the Sabbath. This is rich. I'm speaking sarcastically. I'm, I'm tongue-in-cheek here. That they would say, they're talking to the Son of Man. They're doing what's unauthorized. That's, you need to feel that term there in connection and context with who Jesus is. Mark wants us to see how absurd it is for them to talk about what is authorized directly in front of the chief authority and judge. It's like having one of your children begin to speak <laughs> over you in an authoritative way to, an, to one of your other children as if they're like mom and dad in charge. You're like, hang on, you're not the parent. What are you, who are you? What are you talking about? Dad is present. First subpoint: his, his opponents seek to push a condemning message. His opponents seek to push a condemning message. They don't know it, but it's a condemning one. For a Jew in Jesus' world, the Sabbath had all uh, the, the, the mixture of social pressure and legal sanction, but it meant much more as well. It was a badge of Jewishness for people who had been persecuted and, sim and killed simply for being Jewish. So we understand culturally and we can sympathize why they, it certainly shouldn't matter to them. But biblically, the Sabbath was a day of rest. And if you know the Old Covenant, it was a way they expressed their fidelity to God and it extended from sunset Friday until Saturday, sunset Saturday. Some forgot that it was always intended to point to something greater. It was always an anticipation of something greater. It wasn't an end in and of itself. 
And so it was turned into something it was never su supposed to be turned into. And so the God of the ob observance became obscured and the observers were taking over. You couldn't think about God anymore. It became about man. It became about their, their Jewishness, not about the God of Israel. God, you could say, was being misrepresented here. And it still happens today by religious folks and even churches that have the name church on it <laughs> or congregations that have the name church on it. But Jesus corrects this here. The old covenant law of God directed that you had to rest from your work one day in seven. And that was wonderful, of course. Amen. Uh, but the religious leaders of the day added more to that. You need to understand what's going on. They added more than just taking the day off and, and, and corporate worship. They were adding more to it. They had, they were, they, these folks were known for their regulations. There are historical books that record all the little rules they had added. They had more regulations than California. They fenced in this law of the Sabbath with a stack of specific regulations. There were 39 types of activities that you could not do on the Sabbath, not from the scriptures, but from them, from their traditions. The Pharisees were like the committee of a golf club, one guy said, which always had a beautiful, you know, beautiful fairways in which to play. But in order to preserve the fairways from being cut up with divots, they insisted that golfers play their shots from the rough grass at the side. The golf courses like Sabbath are meant to be enjoyed, not preserved as living museums. They forgot how the Sabbath day was a national flag that spoke of freedom to come of hope for a great day of rest, the day of the Lord, when God would finally liberate His people in the final sense and creation made new. God is not pleased, friends, with ritualistic observance of the letter of the law, but wants joyful obedience. Isn't that what He said in Hosea this morning? God created the Sabbath for the benefit of human beings who are the pinnacle of His creation. He didn't create, it, create them as slaves of its ritual observance. The Sabbath day was to be a day of renewal, rest for the body, and worship for the soul, and they have turned it on its head. It's become a, a, a condemning thing, a cursed, a, 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 a rock around the neck. And Jesus demonstrates beautifully that He alone is able to do us the most good, that we may enter in the joys of doing the good things of God. It's His grace in Jesus Christ which produces such goodness, not works. And by the way, the Pharisees were, were like... Just, I want to really see them on an honest way because we can think, oh, the Pharisees were of that day. That, that doesn't happen in our day. Well, it certainly does. They were like some of these YouTubers online today that think very highly of their voices or their channels or their blog posts. And they have an audience for some reason. They were in, this, is, this is why they're like them. The Pharisees were entirely self-chosen. Built, but in actuality, they had no authority to make laws or enforce them. And sadly, these types of people acquire considerable influence on ordinary people who respected their perceived expertise. Someone may look like an expert, doesn't mean they are. It doesn't mean they're gifted of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean they're up to real good. But you know what they were also like similar today? They were a lot like cancel culture today too. They are the self-appointed guardians 
of, the, of public morality and spying on people in the public eye, calling them to conform to them. There is a group that would shout you down if you don't follow their regimen today and throw, it, throw down in the same outrage that they are in today. The Pharisees relied on their traditions for guidance, and in so doing, they missed the lawgiver entirely. They were, so, they were so caught up in their traditions, they missed God completely. And people today pick up aspects of morality and injustice without dealing with their own hearts and their own need for humility before God because they don't see God as the judge. They place themselves in that position. They reject the notion that they are wicked too in the eyes of God. And if they do speak of their sin, it's always very generally. Friends, when you see this in folks, religious or secular, do you ever stop and think carefully about their actual message? Do, they even, do, do you hear the message of hope out there today? Is there rest in these, in these works-based righteousness? I'll call it again. Is, is, there, is there hope in critical race theory? Or in Marxism? Is there hope in, in the secularist worldview for our, for our souls and rest there? Are they stealing language and redefining terms like love? Is their preaching actually livable? Can, can anybody really live up to it? Or eventually, the ones who were preaching 20 years ago, that's their message, are now being bitten and consumed by the culture today. They're somehow being canceled and consumed. Is it livable? Is it the message of feeling more guilt and trying to atone for your guilt through hating yourself? Is that, does that sound like the message that we need to embrace? I just need to hate myself more and, and, and just uh, d uh, denounce myself more and more whatever the culture tells me to do. Is there hope in that message? I mean, that sounds great, right? No, that's terrible. Look deeper at the heart. Legalism, workspace righteousness here in the Pharisees, is seductive. We may look at it sometimes as Christians. That's out there. That's wild. That's but it's actually quite seductive. It's seductive to our sinful impulses because it makes us look to ourselves instead of look to our holy God. It's a, while it's seductive to look at ourselves, you, you can count on the fact that it's very deceptive, making us think that we are somehow better and elite when we are actually, the Bible says, slaves to sin. You want to be among those who constantly look critically at others to find shortcomings? Who want you to walk on constant eggshells about how you respond and how you speak? Is that, does that sound like a community of life? No, it sounds exhausting because it is. Friends, this kind of system, of this fault-fighting, self-righteous system that exists in all kinds of shapes and sizes, that looks to criticize and condemn rather than commend and encouraging God our Creator. Friends, it, it reinforces feelings of superiority that is centered on us. And I want to ask, does that ever go well? What does Jesus offer? Something infinitely greater and better. Let's look at it. Second sub-point here. 
His word is a freeing word. His word is a freeing word. Jesus answered their accusation by an appeal to a scriptural example there. Look at the text in verses 25 and 26. To David's flight from Saul at Nob in 1 Samuel 21. So David also did what was unauthorized, but the scriptures do not condemn him for it, is Jesus' point. By introducing this with the words, haven't you read, means you should have known what the law was given to do. That was to help people and not hinder them. You, you act like you know the word so well, but in reality, you don't. Don't you know that just burned them up when he would ever, when Jesus would reply them that way? Haven't you read? You know, friends, we should endeavor to have the word of God on our side in all debatable questions. We should seek to be able to give a clear scriptural answer for our behavior in all matters of dispute. And we should be dogmatic where scripture is dogmatic. And some folks think they are skilled and gifted at this, like the Pharisees, and they forget it's the Spirit who gives people to be teachers, and the local church simply recognizes them as elders. That's when we elect an elder, we're, we're saying we, we see the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And friends, I want to ask you though, who are, whose word are you listening to today? The Pharisees are busted right here. They've been reading their dictionaries. They've been in their, their manuals on tradition so much they have forgotten the text. They have forgotten the word. They are being discipled by something else, not the word. So friends, who's discipling you? Are you hearing God's word? Or are you going off of man's word? Do you see yourself as someone who's been convinced as the, as the final authority yourself? Uh, as you hear the word taught, are you humble enough to admit you're not as mighty as often you might think you are. I don't want to fall. I look at the Pharisees like, my goodness, I don't want to fall in that snare. I don't want to be so blinded. I've seen, I've missed the plain reading of the Bible. Friends, I like some of you have had to learn in difficult ways this lesson. So let's remain open to plain scriptural arguments. Let's seek to be Let's seek to be convinced by the word and not have an attitude of superiority. Well, try to convince. You don't want to be that attitude. Please show me from God's word. I hope that these things are true from the word. And let it be plain. It should be plain from the scriptures. And Jesus shows us a plain example. Jesus provides an example of an appeal to a higher principle than strictly legalistic application of the Sabbath or of any other law. So David here, look at the text, technically did break the ritual law, but he didn't break the spirit and purpose of the law since human needs, of, like, their, like his hunger, superseded the mere ritual observance. They were in need of food. God was not in need of the, of the bread at the, tem, at the tabernacle and temple. So they were allowed to eat under those circumstances. This, is, this was not an act of casual disobedience, by the way. It was a deliberate sign that the king was there. When, that, when, when you read that in Samuel, it's not da David being casual, you know, like, hey, let's just, let's, let's just go by our feelings. That's not what's happening. David, if you know the Old Testament, was anointed as king. And so verse 26, Jesus may have, uh, Jesus, uh, may have mentioned uh, Abiathar, here in the text, because he was the one who later confirmed David 
as God's anointed one. And I don't think that Jesus mentioning that is subtle. I think it's, I think it's a big bomb he placed right there in his words. Can you see where Jesus is going here? Google Earth this text for a minute. Not, don't get on a device. I mean, zoom out. Zoom out to the Gospel of Mark at large. Remember that Mark understands Jesus to be greater than David on a far more urgent mission. When Jesus brings this up to them, he's saying this one recognized David as God's anointed. Do you think they can see who he is? Will they recognize him as the greater son of David? So if David is the Lord's anointed and he had authority to eat the consecrated bread of the priest, how much more does his greater son, the Messiah, have authority over the ritual laws? Remember, Mark's gospel, zoom out. Let's zoom out. The kingdom is breaking in. Heaven has torn open. The Spirit has descended. The kingdom is breaking in. That instead of waiting for the fallen world to come to its point of rest, the new creation is already bursting out on the world, first spiritually, one day physically. And Jesus is the one who can do us the most good. That's what all this background and theology underneath it is putting us to, that Jesus can do us the most good so we can live a different life. Next sub-point. He reminds us that our true rest is in Himself. This is the last sub-point. He reminds us that our true rest is in Himself. Look at the text again, 27 to 28. He says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He cuts across the man-made rules and emphasized the God-given purpose that it was a day intended for the benefit of people for spiritual, mental, and physical restoration. Something else here that could, if, you're not, if we're not careful, we'll miss. Look at the text closely again. There appears to be not just an appeal to Jews, but mankind at large here. A generic reference to all humanity's role in resting. Not merely to the fourth commandment given to Israel. This is pointed out in, the, in, the, in, in what follows where Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, equivalent to son of Adam, the son of man. This is a title. It refers to the total scope of his mission and authority as God present with us in full humanity. I mean... This is, as we looked at before, it's astounding. Folks, when you look at this, isn't Jesus' self-awareness startling? No other human teacher has made any claims that he makes. There are plenty who've said, I'm the divine consciousness. There are plenty of Fruit Loops have said stuff like that. But they think of the divinity as being in all of us in the trees and in the rocks and the human spirit. Jesus identifies himself as the God right here who is uncreated, beginningless, infinitely transcendent, who made this world, who keeps everything in the universe going so that all the molecules and all the stars and all the solar systems are being upheld by his power. Jesus claims these titles and authority that Israelites would not even utter. 
when he says again, the Son of Man, this is the one that God's Word told us would be in Daniel 7. This all-powerful, fully man, fully God figure. He's present. Truly man and truly God. He's the epitome of humanity. The true image bearer that Adam was not and you and I have never been because he is God come to inaugurate the promised rest in the kingdom of God as only he can do. He is, as Paul said, the image of the invisible God. God's invisible. He made himself visible in Jesus. Jesus reveals what should be plain that the purpose of God was not to create Sabbath rules to weigh down humans. And he has authority to determine God's intention for the Sabbath and how the rules are to be interpreted. Remember the image. The parents are talking to one child and another child comes in and tries to overtake that. No. The real authority is present. The the one who has perfect interpretation of the law and the intent of the law is present. God Himself is in the flesh. Jesus. The Pharisees, like all of us at times, and if you're honest with yourself, and if we're all honest with ourselves this morning, no, the Pharisees were acting like us at times. They were acting like they were the Son of Man. Like they were the real authority. But didn't see the, the arrogance and, 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 and their self-righteous way. Sometimes we can be so self-righteous as if we're the Son of Man. Maybe today you need to be told, look, we all need to be told this, look, you're not the Son of Man. Stop acting like you are. You're not God. We are not answerable to you. We're answerable first to God. The Sabbath rest must be interpreted in light of this one who has all authority. You know, whenever we're dealing with selfishness in the home, it's good to remember, selfishness doesn't dictate the home. Jesus does. You know, a spouse or a child is being demanded. Hey, last I checked, you're not Jesus. Do you want us to pay homage to you as if you're Jesus? Okay, we get that out of the way. Let's go back and get our hearts focused on Christ. Jesus has all authority. Let's start with Him. Our rest, our lives to be interpreted in light of Jesus Christ. And it only gets better. The Sabbath does not take precedence over the Son of Man. The Son of Man takes precedence over the Sabbath. Jesus is the only one who finally brings the blessing of Sabbath really to God's people. He's the one who brings it finally. But look at what Mark shows us here. There's more here. Just I could not go past these verses too quickly. There's more to it. The Sabbath day, if you remember, was instituted not because God needed rest, but to meet a human need. A human need. Creatures have needs. Creator does not. And the day is best sanctified when human needs are met on it. And that's going to go into the next section of Scripture that we'll be in, Lord willing, next week. But do you see what Jesus is saying here? This isn't primarily a story about finding a loophole in Sabbath regulations. You know, sometimes we can go to the Bible and just try to find as many loop. You know, maybe there's a loophole here about this difficult command. No, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is being, this is Jesus being revealed as greater than the Sabbath. He says, I, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he is the one the Bible reveals to us here. 
as Lord of the Sabbath who brings real rest and satisfaction. That the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, excuse me, Old Covenant Sabbath could not provide. Let me put it like this. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus literally, from the Greeks, tabernacled amongst us. John uses that verb deliberately to show Jesus is the presence of God. He's come, a greater templing, tabernacling presence of the Lord is present. Okay? If Jesus is a walking, living, breathing temple, as John said he was, then he's also the walking, celebrating, victorious Sabbath. Can you, can you tell yet in your body that we all need rest? Some of you look like you need some rest today. Some of the young ones, they, I, they, do, they do fool me. I think, man, I don't think they, they're like the Energizer Bunny. They just keep going. But eventually they crash hard. No, we all need rest. We, all the work we have to do, all the rules that weigh us down, that we have none kept, we're just physically and spiritually exhausted. Who can help us? Mark is telling you and I, Jesus is our only help. The word Sabbath means a deep rest, a deep peace. Doesn't that, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It's a near synonym for shalom, a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life. And when Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus means that He is the Sabbath. He is the source of deep rest that we need. He has, to, he has come to completely change the way we rest. The one day a week rest we take is just a taste, beloved. Just a taste of the deep, divine rest we need. And Jesus is the source. I'm, try, I'm trying to keep passing the goodness to you. Keep coming to Christ. It gets better. Let's take it down into our hearts. Most of us work and work trying to prove ourselves to convince God and others and, 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 and that we're good people. But the Bible shows that while we may have moments of good, inwardly we are yet still sinners. The truth of the matter is that none of us have loved God and obeyed Him. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all we've had other God. We we've all had uh, made gods of created things above Him in our lives. We put our trust in in all kinds of things like physical health. We've put our trust in government for some reason. Our hopes are tied to it. We put our trust in people who constantly dis disappoint and money and power. We give our devotion to sports, to family and jobs over God Almighty. We obey the call of the flesh and impulse over obeying His Word. We not only fall short, but we have rebelled against God, our holy God. We are guilty of lawlessness we have sinned against the one who's perfect and who cannot and will not tolerate sin because he is good. I mean, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Living a life of self-justification, you know, where we're constantly trying to be 
do good enough to make up for the bad, that's an exhausting and vain exercise before perfect holy God. No one can justify themselves perfectly before God. Our sins are, are so many. The Bible says the wages of sin, the cost of our sin in the justice sense, for the, justice, the, the cost of our rebellion is judgment by death. The wages of sin is death. Eternal death and curse and separation from God's blessedness forever unless we take hold of Jesus by trust. Jesus has come to give us rest. Let me tell you more about that. At the end of his great creation, God said, it's finished. And he could rest. And on the cross, at the end of his great act of redemption, Jesus said, it is finished. How? He literally came to do the work we could not do for ourselves. Jesus perfectly imaged God in his life. Perfectly obeyed him. And he died to satisfy God's justice in his death. We need him to live for us the perfect life of obedience and then go die on the cross to pay for our sin as a sin payment and substitute for us. And on that cross, Jesus was saying this need to prove yourself because who you are and what you do are never good enough. That is finished by me. Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Perfectly obey and satisfy God's just and righteous demands. He has lived the life we all should have lived. He, had, he has died the death we should have died for our sins. And if you rely on Jesus' finished work, if you say, Father, I am a sinner. I have transgressed. I have disobeyed. I have lived for myself. I have never been perfect. I have never done right. I have disobeyed you. But Jesus did in my place. And I trust that His payment on that cross, His death in my place and His resurrection is my only hope. I'm clinging only to Jesus. God will forgive you. He'll cleanse you, forgive you, and take you to be with Him forevermore. So when I say put your faith in Christ, I'm talking about trusting only in Jesus. If you were to stand before God, would you say, well, God, I do believe in Jesus, but I was pretty good too. That's not believing in Christ. Believing in Christ is believing in His merits alone. Nothing to the cross I bring. Nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Clinging to Jesus is what we do. And so my message to you all is come to Christ. Come to Christ. Put your trust in Jesus. Stop trying to prove yourself. If you're a Christian this morning, you've, you've put your trust in Christ, but maybe you're, you're trying to prove that God made the right choice in saving you. I'm telling you, turn from that. Trust in Christ. There's no proving anything to God. He knows exactly who you are. And the good works you do do, let them let him flow from the love you have by the, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's not to prove Him right in some way. He doesn't need us that way. Christian and non-Christian, come to Christ. Stop trying to prove yourself. Humble yourself in light of God's mighty love and rest in the Lord of the Sabbath who is the Sabbath Himself. He is the one who gives rest to our souls. He will renew all creation Come to Christ. Turn from your sins 
and trust in Christ. The gospel of Jesus is not only different from working to, to feel good and be good enough for God, it, it's, it's opposed to that view. It says, I am fully accepted in Christ because what He's done and who He is. That's why I obey. I obey because of Jesus. You know, one historian said something very interesting that I read this week. He said this, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That fire has become flesh? That life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit, deceit, a, a bit of deceitful uh, uh, play acting. Most of us, he says, unable to cope with, with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world of in-between. So, you know, you're either completely against Christ or you, you're, you're awakened and, and alive in Christ or you're, he says you're this third Cali or you want to live in between. And he says, here's what he says, you, you can't live with that way in integrity. You either have to denounce him completely as nutso or embrace him as he truly is. Do you pray to Jesus only when you're in trouble and otherwise mostly ignore him? You're walking in that, that self-deceived, in-between way that shows you don't have integrity. Either Jesus can't hear you because he's not who he says he is, or he is who he says he is, and he must become the still the point of your turning of your turning world, the center around which your entire life revolves. Do you know this Jesus? Or are you just playing at Christianity? Friends, either Christ is a wicked liar or crazy person, and you, and you should have nothing to do with him, or he is who he says he is, and your whole life has to revolve around him. And you have to throw everything at his feet and say, command me, Lord, command me. Do you walk with Jesus like that? Do you treat him as he is, the Son of Man? Or are you play acting at something? Come to grips with who He is. Come to Christ. La Plata Baptist Church, this is where we live from today. We live from this point. The Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man. Here's some application that Dr. David Garland had on this section of Scripture I want to share with you. He said, Sabbath keeping means restful action, not inaction. The Lord's day is not a day for idleness. Idleness is a sin every day. We do not keep the Sabbath holy by lounging around doing nothing. We're to rest from the business of our earthly calling. That's worldly calling, worldliness, things that's going to perish. That could be anything from work to recreation. We're to rest from the business of our earthly calling in order to prioritize the business of our heavenly calling. Amen, Dr. Garland. He's right. And that's why we mean as elders as, and as a church about, as a church, prioritizing the Lord's day if it's within our ability. It's about prioritizing our heavenly calling for the refreshment of our souls. To fix our eyes again on Jesus. So Christian, I want to ask you, is faithfulness to church turning into ceremony and ritual to you? 
You know, Dr. Boyce said, there's nothing as tragic as the tendency of the human heart to seize upon some outward, useless, hypocritical ceremony and follow it to the letter without any way actually turning to God in trust, end quote. Turn from that. Give your heart to Christ. You know, Sunday, if we get off from work, if we get that day off from work, some of our members don't have that opportunity and privilege. There are members of our church who have to work on Sundays and they love to be here. If we get off from work, it's to be a day of blessing to our souls without extra laws. You realize, friends, obviously the church should not put on you extra laws. We as elders certainly don't want to do that. But you shouldn't let the world do that to you either. The world gives us extra laws all the time. Don't let the world dictate your time of refreshment in God by calling you to commit to sports, to projects, and other things. You know that's wrong. You know it's right. It's not right to commit your family to all kinds of activities that call for real sacrifice on the Lord's Day. You know that's not right. You should be gathered with God's people. It's not healthy or restful to build your life around what the, Lord, what the world would have us to do. So many folks I saw this week, again, going back over the bridge. And you'll see them on the way home on the weekend. They're backed up in camp. They work so hard for the weekend that I, when you see them at work the next day on Monday, they don't look refreshed. They look like they've labored. They look like they've been under the burden so desperate to get that weekend in. If we would just set our eyes on Christ and follow the wisdom of His Word and gather with the times that He allows us to and be encouraged in Him, we'd be so much better off. You can think about your life, friends, from the view of man in general, which is to pursue feeling happiness for your meaning. You can pursue good works as the main pursuit and think that that somehow justifies you if you just keep tallying more good deeds up every day, forgetting that God's holy. Or you can be fully accepted in Christ who alone can give you rest. You can rest in your conscience at night knowing my sins, past, present, and future have been paid for at Calvary. I bear them no more. What a Savior. And it's because of that burden being lifted I can go and serve and do good. Because the greatest good has been done unto me. I've been forgiven of my sin debt in Christ. Come to Christ. Put your trust in Jesus. Follow Him. Prioritize your life around the Son of Man. Put Him smack dab in the middle and circle your life around Him. Don't let anything else get in the way of this One who grants us final eternal rest in Himself. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see where we are listening to false messages of workspace righteousness, Lord. Cause us to rejoice all the more at Calvary in the perfect righteousness of Your Son. Help us to center our lives around the Lord of the Sabbath. Lord, help our life to bear the fruit, Lord, of those who've done the greatest good through Christ our Savior, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.